Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a culture and conversation podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and on today's episode, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Jeremy O'Brien. Jeremy is a Mississippi-born, Brooklyn-based playwright and educator. His visceral and imaginative plays seek to uncover the deep genius of the Black quotidian while centering the experiences of Black queer boys. In 2016, he served as one of Lambda Literary's emerging LGBTQ voice fellows for playwriting under the tutelage of Robert O'Hara. And in 2018, O'Brien served as a playwriting fellow with Athena Theater Company in New York City, where he developed his new play, Egg, or Anything Dipped in Egg Gone Soften. Currently, he's developing a new play with the American Academy of Dramatic Arts titled A Curious Thing, and his work has been produced or developed with Tectonic Theater Company, Athena Theater Company, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and the New School for Drama, where he studied playwriting. And Jeremy holds a master's in African and African Diaspora Studies from UT Austin and a BA from Tougaloo College. Jeremy is one of the most fascinating people I've had the pleasure of meeting. I had a brilliant conversation with him. We talked about plays, we talked about generational trauma, we talked about writing, we talked about his personal story. It's a brilliant conversation. Cannot wait to have him back on the show again. Um, before we get into it, I do want to let you know that today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Empire Toys. Nostalgia is everything. Nostalgia, excuse me, is something everyone loves, and Empire Toys in Keller, Texas is on nostalgia overload. With toys and action figures from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, Empire Toys is a one-stop shop for a trip down memory lane and a chance to reclaim what was once yours but likely sold at a garage sale. Check out Empire Toys on Facebook, Instagram, or at TheEmpireToys.com. Now, if this is your first time tuning into the Detox Podcast, welcome. Hope you like what you hear and that you'll come back again soon. If you are a returning listener, thank you for stopping by. I really hope that you're able to detox from the world around you and just for the next 45, 50, 60 minutes, relax and get a window into how other people live their lives. Best way to help out this podcast, if you want to do so, is as follows. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast rate the podcast, review the podcast, share the podcast with a friend. It really helps independent podcasts like this one out. Now, without further ado, my conversation with Jeremy O'Brien is right up after this. What's going on? My name is Joe Shaw, and I host the music podcast, After the Encore. After the Encore is a long-form, career retrospective podcast that takes you behind the music of some of your favorite artists. Musicians like John Oates of Holland Oates, Chris Kirkpatrick of NSYNC, and Jarrett Reddick of Bowling for Soup, and many others. Each season of the podcast is themed around a different topic, like the boy bands of the 90s, badass women in music, or even artists that were featured on the TV show, The Voice. I am committed to taking you deep inside an artist's mind to find out why they do what they do, what does music mean to them, and how do they quantify success. We tell an overarching story which will take you not only behind the music, but into the psyche of the artists themselves. After the Encore is a proud member of the Roberts Media Group podcast family, Check us out on any of your favorite podcast platforms today. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time is one of the most fascinating individuals I happen to discover on Twitter. Yes, I know. I know usually that is not a good combination, but in this case, it worked out. Jeremy O'Brien. Jeremy, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I am doing well. And I I am so excited to get to talk to you because I feel like everything that I've read about you is wonderful. You're absolutely contributing to try and make the world a better place. And I just oh, think... Thank you. You're welcome. And I just think good people having a conversation together, we can leave a little bit of a moment in time right now so that way folks can come back and listen to it and be like, oh, this is wonderful. Let's also make the world a better place. I love it. So yeah. that makes me feel good. Now, 
For those who may not know, maybe this is your first time here at the Detox Podcast, we invite people to detox, quote unquote, from the world around them, sit back, relax, get a window into how other people live their lives. And so to start the conversation, Jeremy, I like to ask my guests, what are you currently detoxing from? Oh, man. Wow. (laughs) That one hit me in the gut. (laughs) Um, Wow. I think if I had to be honest and vulnerable and fair to myself, I would say I'm detoxing from codependency. Mm. And it's a thing that I've been unlearning for maybe, or like consciously unlearning for maybe the last two or three years, like starting therapy and all of that kind of stuff. And going to drama school where where there's a deep interrogation of the personal in, in order to lift it like to the level of being political yep. um and so yeah I, I think like codependency and really questioning in each and every moment am I acting out of a place of selflessness or a place of codependency and that's like my personal relationship with um and I don't I would reduce it to romance but it it's not true it's it's it, it's manifested in so many ways over the course of my I say 20s because I've been conscious of it, you know, like as a, as a kid, you're kind of just chilling, but like, as I'm turning actually next month, um, Virgo season, (laughs) I'm really conscious of codependency and really trying to live a life that's balanced where I'm not taking too much and where I'm not giving too much. Um, so trying to learn, I don't know, balance and temperance. Yeah. I like how you talk about codependency manifesting in a variety of ways. I think it's easy to think about codependency in the romantic sense, right? And romantic entanglements Mm -hmm. and perhaps past relationships. I think that's what we're most um, used to hearing that phrase utilized. However, that being said, I think we can become codependent in a variety of ways. We can become codependent on what, what even, what we choose to let define us right so i know Mm -hmm. i know that for so long so i grew up in a household where i also did theater my undergrad degrees in theater um but i also played ice hockey i played sports because that was something that my dad wanted me to do and i wanted to impress him and so i did something that was fine um but i did it i didn't do it for myself i did it for him and i let that identity define me like i am an athlete i am Uh, a hockey player, right? And then when I graduated high school and went into college and no longer wanted to carry that moniker with me, I was a bit lost. I didn't know Mm -hmm. who I was Mm -hmm. because I wasn't, I was for for four years, it was, well, plus four years, but four years in high school, it was easy to say, this is who I am. This is my identity. My identity is wrapped up in this. I am now codependent on all of the things and the perceptions that come along with that. Mm -hmm. You strip yeah, you strip that away and it feels raw and, and you get that ability to, or you are forced to do a lot of soul searching. And I think we, we do it in pieces and parts. I think we don't do it all at once necessarily, but we find, we try out some new things and we figure out who we are and we start peeling back the layers Mm -hmm. and then we, we grow. And I think that's a wonderful Mm -hmm. way that you put it about the codependency on other things and other situations. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I think that you, well, something that I learned about you as far as uh, researching is I, I just felt your authenticity jumping off uh-huh. the page every time I, I, I read something. And so I'm going to use this as a segue for folks to know about our sponsor for today's episode, which is Snuffy. Uh-huh. Snuffy is a clothing brand about empowering you to show your weird unapologetically with bravery and confidence. 10% of profit goes to LGBTQ plus organizations led by trans people of color. Shop online now at snuffy.co. That's snuffy, S-N-U-F-F-Y dot C-O. The owner and operator of Snuffy is good friend of the podcast, Nick Silvestri, who designed the Detox Podcast logos. So if you like the logo, you want to go support him, go check it out, snuffy.co. But truthfully, um, I was drawn to, there was an article that I read that was uh, written about you. It was on AAIHS.org. Yes. And that interview just leapt off the page to me. And I want to, I want to provide something that you had, you had written where you talked about, oh, I'm lost my place here. Um, 
so, oh, this is what it was. Uh, at the time when it was written, you said that you were... So first of all, for those who don't know, you're a playwright. And uh, it, at the time you said you're working on a cycle of plays that interrogate the history and effects of the AIDS epidemic on black families mm -hmm. and how we engage that memory. And you yeah. said, and I quote, I used to hesitate to say this because it sounds dark, but that's me working through my own body knowledge. I feel like there is a part of our community that's trapped at the onset of the epidemic. And I think it's most obvious in the silence we experience, yet the world of people living with HIV AIDS during and since the epidemic is a world filled with love, fun, heartache, bliss, and uncontrollable laughter and music, dance, fears, anxiety, fullness. I hope to imagine these worlds. So I think that's fantastic. And honestly, I mean, it had been on my watch to watch list for so long, but I finally have been binging it pose on FX. Yes. And that I think has done a tremendous job of showing the nuances within yeah. the culture during the epidemic. So I'd love for you to speak to the words that, that you had said at the time, your current projects and what, what your mindset is around them. Okay, beautiful. Uh, yeah, I forgot that I wrote that. Man, look at me. Um, but also, no, I'm right. done. I'm done. Um, I think my mindset is very much still the same. I think that people living with, thriving with, like, HIV, there are so many people who are living and thriving, and particularly for me, Black gay men, because that that's an epidemic that is not talked about a lot. Um, Danye Love, wrote a play um two and one um or one and two i'm sorry <laughs> two and one i've made it reverse but wrote a play one and two and it's about the simple fact the, the statistics every one and two black same gender loving men will like contract um will have or get hiv within their lifetime mm -hmm. and i think that it's such an alarming um statistic but also um I wish that statistics then didn't push us to silence. I wish that it maybe pushed us to anger or or any any emotion that would then force us or or nudge us to action. And so for me, like I'm consciously engaging always those statistics, but also the fact that people are genuinely living um, out loud and thriving and doing well like and and like beautiful lives and and doing so with an HIV diagnosis that is you know um that is under the and are under the care of like physicians and so I think in my work every play I've written um has engaged to some degree um the legacy and I call it like the afterlife and I'm sure somebody else has called it somebody else calls it the same thing so I'm not right. taking like this stamp of originality, more so just naming or placing or contextualizing my work. Um, I call it like the afterlife of HIV and AIDS in, in Black families. And so my I wrote a play, Egg, or Anything Dipped in Egg, Come Soften. Um, it's the play that received like my first New York City stage reading. And then it got me like um, off-Broadway offer before COVID. Um, and even as things are in limbo, that play that play holds a very significant place in my life because it's a rom-com um, for the stage that really simply engages um, what it means to kind of in the middle of a romantic relationship discover that you've been navigating this relationship and most relationships from a place of kind of running away from childhood trauma yeah. or avoiding familiar familial trauma yeah. and so the play for me it started as this play i needed to write after a breakup with a gemini <laughs> and it morphed into this it morphed into me growing going deeper into my astrology chart and realizing oh this gemini placement is in my chart has influenced a lot too you know and right. this virgo placement and this leo placement and so it Force, it pushed me into like a curiosity about astrology um but it also pushed me into a curiosity about what's with the silence mm -hmm. like what's with um the shame and 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 how to do that in such a way that it still is a rom-com and that it's not hitting anybody over the head right you know and so then i wrote i have another play a curious thing that's going to be workshopped in vermont at the end of this month and it's about these two black queer men who are in a relationship 
married, they're newlyweds, and they are now trying to really come to terms with the fact that they want to be parents in a world filled with like LGBTQ kids killing themselves or trans people being murdered and black people being murdered. Like the ways that you cannot save a child as much as you nurture, nurture and seek to protect and seek to raise up. Right. Like, but there's no safety. And so how do you reckon with that in the face of wanting this kind of ineffable unnameable having or having this ineffable unnameable desire to to have a child and and from a pure place like and so what is that balance um and then there's a play like and so all of my plays are grappling or i have plays that are grappling very specifically with black queer identity and not apologizing but then i have this family drama um under one roof that's really about short story like the patriarch of the family just passed and so now they have to bury him and everything comes to surface from sexual violence to this kind of misguided relationship with religion and church to the silence of hiv and aids in their own family and and it's such it's been such a challenge too how do i weave all of those elements without it feeling like oh that's the those are so many elements right because for me it's real life you know and so sometimes it's grappling with like sometimes theater in my work is it's up against the need to be simple sure but also um the willingness to dare to be um a little more complicated because we are as people you know um i hope that answers the question it does no and that was well (laughs) that was very beautifully put too i mean we are we are not simple you know, we are so complex and have so many intersections from a diversity of lived experiences, diversity of economic upbringing, diversity, of course, of race, diversity of religious beliefs. Um, and, and there's so many different areas that we have, um, that we are so complex. And I think it's, it, we wrestle with these these intersections that we have on a daily basis. And the fact that you said the, you talked about, um, uh, was it uh, egg, uh, egg, any, anything dipped in egg? Anything dipped in egg gone softened. There it is. Yeah, my yes. mom gets a name. Like, my mom brings it up. She's like, and something about the egg. But I've been seeing that online, too. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, so, you no. talk, but you talked about bringing up these historically very difficult issues in a rom-com setting. And I think, yeah. I think what's so powerful is that we, I don't know how to, how to put that. I'm not as well-versed um, in, in, in a lot of these words, but what I will say is um, I think it is easy to make um, easy being a relative term. I think it's mm-hmm. easy to get very, very, dark and depressing very fast and we're talking about some of these issues because of yeah. the very nature of the issues it is powerful to make it into a comedy because it resonates more and yeah and yeah. i i don't know how else to say that but there are so many times where i've seen plays or read plays or seen shows or everything where someone is is telling something serious with a bit of a light heart a bit of a bit of comedy to it. I wouldn't say lighthearted, but a little bit of comedy to it, and then it resonates in a way yeah. that it it, yeah. it can get almost like too too much. I think at a certain point we start if if everything is serious all the time, I yeah. think we start to check out. Yeah, and yeah, and so breaking that up by giving you the serious content with the comedic overtones to drive the point home that allows us to to digest it in a way where it resonates there. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, no, I, no. And I, I've, I've early on when I, when I was first started writing plays, I used to be like heavy, like, yes, this is my trauma. Take it. Oh my goodness. Almost cursed, but I was like, let me not curse now. No, no. Um, I, I, I don't. Oh my God. I feel like you're speaking to the theater kid in me of like, no, this is how it must be. Yeah. 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 And I had to learn or, I learned for myself in exploring and rewriting anytime I sat down to write a play and it was heavy. And I was like, no, like I'm like, and I'm not a light person, but I have learned to 
I've learned to not be weighed down by by the heart by the heavy. Yeah. If that makes sense, because like I've seen so much heavy in my life. And so it's like early at some point I learned, man, I'm gonna have to laugh through some of this shit or else. Yeah. And exactly. so like anytime I'm writing a play and if it's too if I'm like, I don't feel the light and I'm okay with saying lightheartedness, but I don't feel I don't feel the fun. I don't feel the laughter. I don't feel the dance. I don't feel the poetry. Like all these things that I know exist in my culture and where I'm from. Sure. Then I take a step back to say, oh, you're taking yourself too serious, Jeremy. Mm. Right. And it's it's been so healing for me as a playwright, but also as a person to 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 be able to take a step back and say, oh, wait, <laughs> you are taking yourself way too serious. Um, Socrates, back up. <laughs> like, I like to, I like to poke fun at myself, but it it is exactly that. Like learning to not be weighed down because there's still so much life and so much beauty in an HIV diagnosis and a cancer diagnosis or lupus diagnosis. And right. I'm saying all these things from knowing people who are close to me who have all shared similar diagnosis and who have had to learn to laugh and lighten up and, and to still do poetry and to still do dance. And also what's the balance of that and still letting all of your emotions be full. Um, and it is a task and it is a practice, but like, thank God for autonomy because right. it's so necessary, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you talk yeah. you talk about the the under one roof being all this trauma being brought out and discussed and mm-hmm. examined because of the patriarch passing away, right? And so, I think this idea of gener. So what's interesting to me, um, I I just recently, well, I say recently, it was like it's July first when we're recording this. Mm-hmm. This was back in December, so it's not recent. Okay. Although I feel like the days and <laughs> it weeks. Feels recent. Oh my god! I tell you what, like it just, anyways. But I digress. So I watched <laughs> Watchmen, the Watchmen miniseries on HBO, mm-hmm. and they talk. There's a section in there where they're they're juxtaposing. Um, the massacre in Tulsa in the twenties on what was labeled black wall street um, mm-hmm. with some of the, the, the violence and everything happening and in the show is modern time. And so they ta- they have a conversation about generational trauma and how the trauma gets passed down both biologically mm-hmm. and also just from storytelling and from memories and, and everything. And it, it, it is difficult. I think, I think we under, what I say all that to say, I think we as individuals, and I think, some of us in in different cultures um, under like downplay the uh, the effect that the generational trauma has on us and how mm-hmm. much we are working through what our ancestors gave us that we're not mm-hmm. even aware of. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and absolutely. So, yeah. And so, no, go for it. Okay, I was just <laughs> gonna say. And so, I want to know how did you approach dealing with with all of the trauma, whether generational or in different ways, for that specific play? Yeah. Okay. I was in drama school, and I think that week three things happened that week in terms of plays that made me go, ah, okay. And it was reading this play called. Um, Bonjour, La Bonjour by Michael Tremblay. Um, there's a play, and then I, we were reading Check Off, of course, that week, oh. whom I actually love and adore. People I like, do, I do too. Boring, I do but too. I love Check Off because I, I feel too. like he, I feel, I feel like Check Off understands some of the things that the people where I'm from that we understand in terms of stillness and silence and destitution and making a life in the face of. And, and, all those things. I feel like you and um, I are having a, a, a moment, like a, yeah. like a confession moment, even though everybody's going to listen to this later. Yeah, but yeah. I also adore Chekhov and you put it in a way that I didn't under, like I couldn't actually verbalize, but that's exactly like what drew me to him as well. Yes. And all my peers were like, Chekhov, why are we talking about Chekhov? Yeah, no, I, I get back it. to the I, bard I, and I'm like, yeah. no, give me Chekhov. Yeah. Give me this yeah. Russian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, and so it was those two plays and then, um Marcus Gartley's The House That Will Not Stand. I got to see it at New York Theater Workshop. Oh, and wow. some of the beauty that, that happened on that stage, it's like that that play in the context of Louisiana, even though it was in the past, but I'm like, oh, there's so much present here on this stage. And then it's like Michael, the theme of Bonjour La Bonjour has a lot to do with like sexual 
questions of sexual violence within a familiar structure. And then like the, just like the stillness and the questions that Chekhov asks in all of his plays about what it means to live a life and exist. uh, I wanted to play with those elements. And so I started writing a scene as a kind of pastiche of Chekhov where, and it was like a exercise and I was in a class with, um, Oh, Sarah Delap. I was like, why am I forgetting Sarah's <laughs> last name? Sarah Delap. And she gave us this exercise. And from it came like this 10 page scene. And I was like, oh my God, something is happening here. So I, every week, no matter the exercise, I kept with those same characters. And before I knew it, I had this play that was just a mess. But I was like, oh, wow. Okay. I know these people. Yeah. And so I started writing it as a play. Um, I got a residence see with um liberation theater company in harlem who's awesome um if you're looking for somebody to support charity to give to liberation theater company they support like they they are so big on developing black artists i don't think i could have written that play and had and have the confidence that i have today without that space um but yeah like the play came from wanting to really deal with all and, and just engage all of those elements in the context of like present day Mississippi. So I said, oh, these three plays, these these elements of like family and sexual violence and silence and secrets. How, what, it would, what would it look like in present day Mississippi Delta? And so I started writing the play um, and little by little, you know, you have to do the thing of like plot and like, what are we following all that? Right. But also I found a way that each time certain characters like there are two characters that wouldn't leave me alone and I end up like putting it in the play too. Cause I was like, okay, they, they keep coming. And so when they did come, I realized, Oh, that's what that is. So even, so yeah, I, I mostly it started from those plays, but like, like my own spiritual practice and my own understanding of the place that I'm from led me to continue to like flesh out a world that was about, at the end of the day, family, the messiness of family, yeah. the complications of family, but also the joy and the love, you know, and how do all of these things exist in the face of so much that we cannot even speak about, right? right. So even when we speak about certain things, there's so much we can't say, you know, sure. So just looking for a way to engage and explore that space. And so the more I wrote that play, the more it became like a heart a offering to me. And then somewhere in rewriting, I was like, oh, fudge. I think this play may also be about my grandmother's relationship to church. Mm. She was an evangelist um, um, and she passed last year. And it's so crazy for me. It's been full circle because I started the play maybe two, 2018 wow yes i started playing in 2018 and i said oh this is a eulogy play and i had no idea what my life would become over the next three years but it started as a eulogy play and i even like was working on exercises as a grad student i was like what is a eulogy play really fleshing that out um but now three years later i'm like oh wow like thank you spirit (laughs) yeah no you know um because in some ways, and I, I even got the blessing of my grandmother. When the last time I was home last year, I surprised I surprised my mom and my grandmother for Mother's Day. They're inseparable. They were always together. Um, so mom was at my grandmother's house. I lived with my grandmother most of my 20s when I left home. Um, and so I was telling her about the play because I was nervous. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm writing about the church and I'm writing about, I'm inf- it's influenced by you. But like, I think it's such an important story because of sexual violence. And she gave me her blessings because she was like, um, yeah, please write it and don't let anybody stop you from writing it because people are abused in more ways than physical, emotional. And she, we just had this beautiful conversation about abuse. And like, again, in hindsight, it's a eulogy play, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I've always, I never got why it felt so personal and felt, um all of my plays do feel personal but this one felt really close to my heart and like in hindsight I'm like okay thank you spirit yeah. <laughs> you know yeah um, but that that's that's you know I'll pause there but that's that's how that play came about 
all I, of those elements. Oh yeah. my gosh. I, one of the things that I enjoyed very much, um, back when I was, uh, able to, to write with in college, I loved writing dialogue and I loved, mm-hmm. I found that I would try and write dialogue for different characters and situations, but I was always drawn. I found in retrospect to writing dialogue for characters that mirrored myself and, and mm-hmm. past relationships, whether friendships, romantic relationships, etc. And those are the dialogues that came easy. And I found that through that exercise, I was able to work through a lot of um, situations that I didn't realize I was holding on to. And it was, it was a form of therapy in getting to write out um, a conflict and some type of a resolution and have a little bit of closure, even if just on the page. It was something that I, I didn't realize I valued um, until later and not having that outlet and then going to therapy, talking through different situations significantly helped for sure. Um, I want to get into, wow, I, this, I feel like this time is flying by and I have so many other things to talk about, but I want to no, go for it, but I want to talk about, so you went to UT Austin, right? Yes. Hook 'em horns, yes. right? And yeah, hook and so, <laughs> I'm down here in Texas as well. Not in Austin in the Dallas <laughs> area. However, um, I went to Howard Payne University. I don't know if anyone knows what that school Where's is. That's that no. in Brownwood. <laughs> Brownwood. Okay. And yeah, so middle of nowhere. So anyways, shout out if you went to Howard Payne and you're listening. Um, Stingham <laughs> Jackets. So that's our thing. Um, anyways, but I, I digress. So I want to talk about, uh, so did you go to UT Austin for your undergrad? Is that where you went? or No, I went to Tougaloo College for okay. my undergrad. Okay. Private HBCU in Mississippi. Right on. Club for nice. my alma mater. Yeah. That's my heart. Tougaloo is my heart. Everybody knows it. But then I went to UT Austin for graduate school. Gotcha. Which okay. is also my heart too because I, but I think it had a lot to do with studying African-American studies and gender and sex that allowed me to be like, oh, okay. Um, yeah. But yes, UT Austin. Very nice. So what, I'm curious, what brought you to UT Austin for that? And then, are, and then so this is what I want to ask. Let me say this. Walk me through your journey of going to UT Austin for your master's and then going going to New York and getting plugged into uh, the theater scene in New York. Yes. Okay. Um, at Tougaloo College, I wrote, I started out as English major, creative, creative writing emphasis. Um, I wrote a lot of short stories and poems that were like crappy <laughs> um, by the standards of the powers that be. Um, but then I wrote, I remember the first time I wrote, um, junior year of college, I took a dramatic writing course and I remember the entire room's response to the work I had brought in. And I was like, oh, okay. I think this is the feeling I've been hoping to get from poetry and short stories. (laughs) Um, and the plus was, oh, I got to be poetic and like, like there's a way that you can be a poetic playwright and be good. But then if you choose to be a poet as a playwright you may be called bad. So like the politics, so <laughs> I, I got to mean. navigate the politics. And so I helped to then co-produce um, the first theater, the first in a while, at least theater festival of short plays. And it just was so um, mind blowing to like watch people respond to my work, but also for people for it to resonate. And then the provost at the time walked up to me and said, please never stop writing. Um, And so I went to Brown University for Black Lavender, which is a week of theater for, and it's specifically Black LGBTQ um, theater. Um, And I got to sit on a panel with um, Shirlene Holmes, Dr. Shirlene Holmes, and Dr. E. Patrick Johnson. And they had a similar response to hearing me speak about my work, which is like, write that down. And so by the time I realized, oh, I think I'm a playwright. I had already gotten accepted into grad school. But what took me to apply to UT Austin, I applied to UT Georgia State and some more schools. Um, but the, those two were my top choices because they had African-American studies and gotcha. they were still kind of in the South. Right. And so I went to UT for that reason and then ended up meeting Dr. Lisa B. Thompson, who was a f- phenomenal playwright who allowed me to take her course, this heavily theory course. And she was like, you can write a play if you want to. So I wrote like a, my first full length play 
um, and a course called Black Cultural Trauma. Um, the following year, I started applying to stuff and I got my first playwriting fellowship um, with Lambda Literary. Um, um, and that year, Robert O'Hara was um, the playwright in residence. And so it was a, I, I, one, I have so much love and adoration for Robert and his work and his audacity. And two, it was such a confidence booster to be handpicked to be in residence, to be a fellow by Robert O'Hara. Mm -hmm. And so I think after that, I was like, okay, I think I need to go to New York because I need to, like, I'm going to go to New York and within two years, I'm going to establish myself as a playwright. And so I went to New York, <laughs> like after a year of teaching in Houston, after grad school, I went to New York. Um, I had gotten into the new school, but I took a year off to teach just to get acclimated to the city. Um, and I was, I would teach during the daytime, like at the charter school, I taught ninth grade and 12th grade history. I would teach during the day, maybe come home for a, a break or a nap and I'd get up and write plays. Um, and that was my life for like four years. And then once I got into grad school, I had a little more time to really maximize the work that I had written beforehand to apply to more stuff to network. And, and yeah, like, I think like I'm, I'm speeding it up, but that's pretty much the story is that like I wrote a play in undergrad that worked out and resonated with people. And then in grad school, I ran into like, there's just so many things that were put in to my put in place from Dr. Lisa B. Thompson, who's a playwright yeah. to friends. I got to take writing for TV. So I made friends there and just, yeah, it, it was, I've never been so affirmed in my life and, and I'm not being hyperbolic. Right. And so it felt like, oh, I have something to give to the world, you know, um, yeah. and I've always been a writer, but I think opening myself up to share my work was like, oh, look, yeah. I love that. It is, it's so wonderful to me how everybody's story shapes out and, and the beauty in that this is a snapshot in time. Right. Yeah. And so like our lives are still moving and still going. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's so interesting to me to be able to like reflect and, and look back on things. I was, I was listening to uh, an interview and I do not recall the woman's name, but she created, I believe it was the first black owned radio station in, I don't know if it was in the America or just in Atlanta or where it was, but she was on NPR's how I built this several years ago. And she was talking about the fact that she said, Everybody gets luck every single day. We all get amounts of luck, little bits of luck, large bits of luck. She said the successful people are the people that can, in the moment, recognize the luck they just received and use it for their benefit. She gave an example of if I hit all the green lights between my house and my job and I arrive 45 minutes early, I have a choice. I can use that 45 minutes early for myself, for either development, to prep, to network, whatever I need to do. Or I can use that 45 minutes to sit in my car, play on my phone, and just wait until it's time to go in. She's like, the people that recognize it are able to use that 45 minutes, benefit themselves, and put themselves in a position where people are able to connect with them, be drawn to them, be drawn to their energy, and things happen, versus the people that just kind of let the luck pass by them and not be aware of it. And she said, so what kind of person do you want to be? And, and ever since then, I realized I need to start making micro moves in, in life. And that's taking in the, the feedback or the moments of opportunity and reflecting on them and immediately incorporating them into my day to day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that resonates. I, I think my moment like that may have been listening to, cause I love Shonda Rhimes and I'm oh, just like, yes. oh, if you ever give me half of a budget of Shonda Rhimes, I'm going to be like black queer sitcom king yes and i'm standing by it yes um but also like she did this um commencement speech where she simply talked about there are dreamers and then there are doers mm. and that and it and i've and i've learned that even as my career is not even i'm technically still emerging i've not had a production blah 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 all that stuff and as i emerge i can attest to as i look back it there is absolutely a difference between dreamers and doers you know because in doing you learn so much even when yes. you fall flat even when you suck at it even when you get a rejection you're learning so much and dreaming is just this imagined place that may or may not come into being if right. 
and it's all up to you. It's all in your wheelhouse. And so, yeah, is what do you do with the, with those chances of luck? You know exactly, exactly. Well said. Um, I heard somebody say the other day it was like you don't have wins and losses; you have wins and learnings. And yeah. so you you learn um, on how to improve and move forward. And yeah. I was like, well, that's. I was like, the way he delivered it was a little bit corny but it still resonated and i loved it and so um it was it was wonderful well i want to ask you as we're starting to get to wrap up if what advice would you have if someone has a has a child at home who is an aspiring playwright or just an aspiring writer what are some lessons that you learned for yourself that you would like to pass on to the next generation um yeah i think if i were given advice to parents as like a playwright who has been in practice, but also as like an educator, I work with six, seven, eight, nine, 11, 12th grade, and then collegiate. <laughs> and I think it's really to give students or kids or children the space to tell you what they think they want. Right. Yeah. And I think that we refuse autonomy to kids. And I think like my, my career has taught me that kids are so much smarter than adults. And what I mean by that is that, like, I think as adults, the older we get, the more we feel the pressure to succumb to, like, other people's expectations or ideals and ideas. And kids are just like, yeah, no, they don't feel good. And I think that by allowing kids to, like, every to just share what feels good and what doesn't and to have a conversation from a place of, like, curiosity and to find that balance of, like, nurturing and parenting and 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 then the absolute yeah no you can't do that right right because there are some moments where you like have to tell kids like right. yeah no not <laughs> gonna happen buddy yeah. but then there are moments where you have I think and my mom taught me this so right and, and so I think I remember being maybe 11 or 12 maybe younger and my mom basically stopped whooping us <laughs> you know and she was like this doesn't feel good anymore. Like, and she had, and it wasn't like she just stopped. She had a conversation with us. Yeah. Explaining that like, no, I don't, I don't want to whoop y'all. And I, I don't like, like really having a conversation to help us understand. And there were, the older we got, the more we had conversations. Like, if you think I'm being unfair to you, please tell me. And I think like that drastically, it's helped me in so many ways, even in the face of like unthinkable hurt. Yeah. And, disadvantages like the space and freedom of having been a kid who was allowed to question and to be curious yeah and to be open about it 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 really it gave me so much you know and I think my advice would be to from a parental authority standpoint is to be more curious to be more questioning to be more open to differences and advice to kids to be more open yeah to be more curious um to ask questions when things don't feel right to speak up when it don't feel right and i hope that parents will allow that space especially for black and brown kids because that matters so much too yes. that they're allowed to talk about what just simply does not feel good <laughs> you know yeah. like oh, that, that level of autonomy yeah yeah i like what you said about giving kids autonomy. I think it is so easy for adults to say, uh, you're, ju you're just a kid. I'm using air quotes here. You're mm -hmm. just a kid. You don't know what you want. They do know what they want. Yeah. Sometimes they can't yeah. articulate it. Yeah. And so it's our job as adults to help them articulate what it is they want, mm -hmm. what it is they feel. So they have the language to be able to better understand their world and themselves. Yep. To facilitate, right? Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I had that conversation with my mom too. I was like, as a, I think that like for me, parents should have a rule of thumb. It's like, imagine themselves being a teacher. What would you do to somebody else's child? Yeah. And if you wouldn't do it to somebody else's child, think twice before you do it to your child. Yes. Because I think sometimes like the people closest to us, the adults, our partners, and then our children, they face like the ugliest parts of us because we have no other outlet or like, it's not professional to yell at work. And it's like, and yeah. so how, how do we breathe? How do we yeah. take a step back to say, Oh, wow. But my, this is like, and not even my child here. Here's a gift from universe that yes. I'm 
that is in my care and how do I give to them in a way that does not take from them? You yes. know? Yes. That hit some people, myself included, <laughs> right at the core. Um, because it's a, it's a thing where I think it's a constant, I don't want to say struggle, but I think it's a constant um, internal thought of mm-hmm. how checking ourselves before we react is what I'm getting at, right? And so I think it can become, if we're not careful as as caregivers, as parents, as, as adults, it can become too easy to just let things slip. But you are yeah. correct in that this is a gift that the universe has given us and entrusted to us. And so we need to ensure that we are giving them all they need to survive and thrive and that we're not chipping away at them, but we're empowering them and we're lifting them up. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well said. Um, I'm going to, now I'm going to pivot to the next part of the show, which is mm-hmm. things to check out. So it's a, part of the show where I provide recommendations for my listeners, either something to watch, read, listen to, etc. And I ask my guests to do the same. So I will go first and provide a couple recommendations. So things to check out. I, I do want to give, um, uh, if you're looking for something to listen to, good friend of the podcast, Lara uh, Whitley has a true crime podcast called Hellbound. Uh, it's great. She's been on the show before, and I recently guested on an episode. Um, it's called uh, The Von Eric Family, where we talked about the curse or not curse of the Von Eric family from Dallas, Texas, who were a big professional wrestling family in the 80s. Yes, wrestling, true crime, uh, me, all on the show. So very interesting. Definitely go check it out wherever you get your podcast. Um, a book I want to recommend is Saved by a Song by Mary Gaucher. Uh, she wrote about the power of songwriting. So Mary was a guest on my other podcast after the Encore where we did a career retrospective and also talked about the book. So definitely go check it out. And then I got to give a, a recommendation to the show. I mentioned it earlier, but it, seriously, if you've not checked out Pose, what are you doing? It is incredible. It's on Netflix. It's on FX. It's wherever. You just need to get it. And then after you've watched Pose and you're fascinated by Ballroom, uh, go watch Legendary on HBO Max because that is a ballroom competition show and it is fantastic. It is wonderful. So those are my recommendations. Jeremy, uh, what are things uh, that you would like to recommend listeners check out? Yes. Uh, there's a show on Showtime that I'm so in love with. Flatbush misdemeanors. Um, and I have a friend, Chrissy Dotson, who's um cast part of the cast. It's a phenomenal and it's it's a comedy, but it's it's so good and refreshing. Um, there's a book called Black Boy Out of Time, a memoir by Hari. Such a beautiful book. I've only gotten to chapter one, but I've been flipping through and like I've promised myself that this month I sit down to just finish the book. But even from the first page there's so much in it um and i've known hari for a while and all of his work has been really thoughtful and impactful um and then i think there's another comedy that i love on fx called dave <laughs> like i'm like lately i've been into like i'm really watching a lot of sitcoms because i love comedy and i'm always curious about what what's people approach to comedy yeah um so dave on fx um and yeah i think like those are like my Three little suggestions. I feel like I should suggest something more, but no, you're good. That's all I got right now. You're good. <laughs> all right. Well, that has been things to check out. And now we're going to pivot to the part of the show, which is the dad joke of the week. It's a segment where I hurl dad jokes at my unsuspecting guests in an attempt to get them to laugh while the audience groans, but I can't hear the audience. I can only hear my guests. So it works out for me, but I do like to put my guests on the spot first. So Jeremy, do you have any jokes you would like to offer up today? Oh man, that's <laughs> so terrible. It's so terrible. <laughs> it's funny because i'm like now i'm like i'm like over here fighting for like a moment i have i pledged phi beta sigma when i was in college and my line brother my three my tray is like like it's we're like real brothers and we text every day like a dad joke at least like twice a week and i can't, i'm just like trying to remember some of them right now but it's like and i know they're inappropriate but i can't find any oh no yeah. i think it's like it's really weird too. I, I'm not gonna give it. I'm not gonna give it that joke because it's like, like you have to see it written out too. It's sure. like a fifty cent joke and oh, like, gotcha. yeah, blah blah blah. <laughs> um, but man, I'm mad because I love dad jokes. So I'm gonna let okay. you go. Go All ahead, right. do your dad joke. All right. So Jeremy, <laughs> why do nurses like red crayons? 
Why do nurses like red crayons? You're going to have to tell me that. Uh, because they sometimes like to draw blood. Draw. Oh, wow. Got it. Right, right. Okay, so you, you do a really good job of this, though, because like, I'm like, okay, maybe I have to learn how to tell dad jokes live. Right. Okay. Instead of like writing it down, I'm, so, I'm presenting it to my pen. So, yeah. so, Jeremy, why do some couples go to the gym? To work it out? Yes, because they want their relationship to work out. They want it <laughs> okay. to, work, to work out. You got you to gotta lift. The, oh, God. You got to press. So the, right, <laughs> right, all right. Last one, last one, Jeremy. Uh, what kind of drink can be bitter and sweet? Uh, Arnold Palmer. Yes, or as I like to call it, reality. Reality. Boo. I get it. No, no, that was, that was All right, so Jeremy, really if, people, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, my handle on Twitter, Instagram is at underscore Jeremy O'Brien. O'Brien with an A-O-B-R-I-A-N. Jeremy O'Brien, underscore Jeremy O'Brien. My handle, Twitter, oh, Instagram. Perfect. Well, Jeremy, this has been absolutely delightful. I did not nearly get to talk to you about as much stuff as I wanted to, so I must have you back on the show again in Please the future. Please and thank you. This yes. has been really delightful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, listeners, you've been detoxing with Detox. Now go and make a more inclusive world. Please. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at detoxpodcast or visit detoxpodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W.com.